This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Movement Watches, Casper Mattresses, The Great Courses Plus, Blue Apron, and our contributors at Patreon.com. A great deal of research was done for this series. While our introduction has been taken from multiple sources, it has primarily been extrapolated from the following book. Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery by Daniel C. Taylor, whom our listeners will meet in part three of this series. In 1921, the Royal Geographic Society was just over 90 years old when it sent Lieutenant Colonel C.K. Howard Berry to find an ascent route for Mount Everest. On this trip, the expedition saw dark figures crossing the snow in the distance where no man should have been. When they found the tracks, they knew these were men of the snows. The Colonel's guides on the trip called these men Meto Kangmis. When it came time to write of these exploits, Journalist Bill Newhouse, recognizing the inaccessibility of the term Meto Kangmis, did his own loose translation and coined the phrase, the abominable snowman. That was the first of many sightings at multiple elevations, not only on Mount Everest, but in surrounding Himalayan regions as well. However, the one piece of evidence that seemed to propel the abominable snowman to stratospheric levels of consciousness is what is now known as the Shipton Footprint. The man who took the photo of that footprint was Eric Earl Shipton, commander of the most excellent order of the British Empire, and he was born in what is now known as Sri Lanka in 1907. Shipton is well known in the history of the mountain climbing community and more specifically the region of Mount Everest. In 1935, he undertook a Mount Everest expedition with a legendary guide, Sherpa Tenzing Norgay, one of the hundred most influential people of the 20th century according to Time magazine. Norgay, along with Sir Edmund Hillary, would be credited in 1953 as one of the first men to summit Mount Everest, which stands at 29,035 feet. Norgay was not present, however, for this 1951 expedition, during which Shipton and Ward successfully ascended 26 peaks in excess of 20,000 feet, surpassing every prior expedition put together, and they did this on a shoestring budget. 24 of those ascents were firsts. Sixteen years later, on his fifth trip to the region, in late August of 1951, Shipton mounted a reconnaissance expedition along with Michael Ward to find new ascent routes for Mount Everest from Nepal. Three months into this expedition, Shipton and Ward photographed previously unseen tracks of a mythical beast that still stir the world's imagination to this day. The following 1997 excerpt is in Michael Ward's own words from Wilderness and Environmental Medicine the official journal of the Wilderness Medical Society. In 1951, Sen Tenzing, Shipton and I descended from the Menlung La, which is a glacier, and at about 16,000 to 17,000 feet, we came across a whole series of footprints in the snow on the lower part of the glacier. There seemed to be two groups, one rather indistinct in outline leading onto the surrounding snowfields. The others were much more distinct with, in places, a markedly individual imprint etched in the two to four inch covering of snow. We had no means of measuring, so after examining them, Shipton took four photographs. Two of the indistinct prints with myself, my footprints, and rucksack beside them for comparison. The other two photographs were one of the most detailed and distinct group of prints, with my ice axe for scale, and a second one with my booted foot. The footprint was about the same length as my boot, and I take a size 42 continental, or 8.5 British, which is about 12 to 13 inches long. The print was nearly twice as broad as my boot, 
three to four inches and had clear-cut edges in the crystalline snow on a base of firm snow ice. There was the definite imprint of a big toe that was broader and shorter than the other rather indistinct toes, of which there seemed to be four or five. We followed these tracks for some way down the easy glacier and noticed that whenever a narrow six-inch-wide crevasse was crossed, there seemed to be claw marks in the snow at the end of the toe imprints. Michael Ward, Everest, 1951. The footprints attributed to the Yeti, myth and reality. The original photos from the 1951 Shipton Ward expedition were auctioned by Christie's in February of 2007. Tonight, we start with the question, what are they photos of? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. The great reward of exploration is not knowing beforehand what will happen. Dr. Daniel C. Taylor, Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery. Join us tonight for part one of our three-part series on the mystery of the Yeti. I gotta tell you, I love that opening quote from Dr. Taylor. Yeah, I think that sums it up on any expedition. You have an idea, you see it from afar, and you don't know what's going to happen or what you'll discover till you get there. I guess for me, when I came across that, it was a parallel for our show in a lot of ways. That's exactly <laughs> what I was getting at, in that we do the same thing with our subjects. Either we'll hear about something, you may know a little bit about it, but you don't know how deep it goes or how high it goes, like mountainous exploration. You don't know how to get there, and then you figure out a path, and you make some discoveries along the way. And you get lost along the way. And you do get attacked by (laughs) yetis. (laughs) That's what happens. Yeah, so this series is going to be a little bit like that, I think. And uh, Professor Taylor is one of the preeminent sources on yeti research, and we will have him joining us in part three of this series. Yeah, that turned out to be, uh, dare I say... I think one of Scott's best interviews, oh, if not his best. Kind. You were not really responsible for the interesting part of that. You yeah. just... <laughs> I just, just asked the question. You managed it well by not saying too much. Yeah. No, no. no. <laughs> really, folks, Scott here got him to open up and talk about the things that he loves, and it's uh, fascinating. Yes. Yeah, so that we're going to get to that in part three when we get down to more of the analysis. But for parts one and two of this series, we're going to talk more about the legends and lore that have created the mythos surrounding the Yeti. How did the Western world first hear about it, and how did they react, and where does it stand today, and how do the indigenous peoples there feel about it? But before we dive into that tonight, we did want to say thank you to everyone who came out to our meetup here in Los Angeles. We had about 150 people. It was pretty amazing. (laughs) It was, uh, some folks were sitting on the floor while we were talking, and I I was just, I was blown away, and everyone was just so nice, and it really was a lot of fun. We were so humbled by how nice and attentive people were, how interactive they were, and seeming to enjoy it. And we all had a great time. And it's funny, because like, I think some people were nervous. It's like, God, that's what they look like? Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know. We don't meet, stay behind yeah. the microphone. Don't meet your podcasters. <laughs> a few people came up to us and said, like, well, it's just so weird. You know, I hear your voice. And I kind of know you in a way, and here you are. And we were also nervous 
meeting you because we want to make a, a great impression. We wanted people to have a good time. And I think everyone did. We certainly did. So yeah, it was a thank lot of you fun. so we, much. We yeah. had a, a trivia game and Movement Watches, who's one of our frequent yeah. sponsors, as a lot of you might know, gave us seven watches to give away to the winners of the trivia game. So that was a lot of fun. We got some really funny answers there, actually, on the, <laughs> some of the guesswork. So I'm going to try and uh, compile those for a posting on Facebook. Yeah, we had Tess come up with them. And with the questions, yes. Yes, with the questions. And there were three rounds, five questions each round, and they got progressively harder, and I had to tap out about mid-half. <laughs> we were like, who would know that? And guess what? People did. People did. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. Congratulations again to the winning team, the Moth Maidens. Who, <laughs> That's right. It was a close tie for second place, but for first place, they were far and away out in front of at least 20 teams that we yeah. had that yeah. all had two to three people on, or one to three people, I should say. Yeah. Thanks once again to Movement. They didn't have to do that. They wanted to be interactive in one of our... Uh, events, and they came through. So thank you so much to them. Yes, absolutely. And I also wanted to thank listeners Cass and Wendy, who are sisters, who helped our man Ed, who was temporarily (laughs) assisting us with our merge table. To be fair to Ed, he made it quite clear when I asked him to help us that he had zero retail experience. What was Ed's phrase to you when you asked just in general if he would help? He said he was going to put it down on his calendar as stepping outside my comfort zone. (laughs) (laughs) So he did. He came. He did really great, though, and helped everybody get some merchandise if they wanted some. And Cass and Wendy helped fold it and make it look like it was the display at a Gap store. And the last thing I wanted to say was if you were there and you took some pictures, you want to share them with us or you're up for putting them in a public forum, please tag us on Twitter or hashtag Astonishing Legends. You can also add them on our Facebook page or in our smaller but very vibrant Facebook group. (laughs) Those are places you can put them or Instagram, you can tag us there. So, um, oh, and one last thing. We just found out a few days ago that we're finalists in the society and culture category for the 2017 Discover Pods Awards. And that's a kind of a people's choice thing. People need to go over there and vote. So if you have the time, shoot over there and give us a vote. And the URL was kind of long, so I did a tiny URL for it. So here's the web address. It's discopods. Right? Tiny <laughs> URL slash discopods. D I S C O P O D S. And voting ends on December 14th. So if you're hearing this as soon as we drop it, please get over there soon and throw us a vote if you can. Yeah. There's a lot of other really great shows in our category, though. So vote for whoever your favorite is. Yeah, that's not a registered trademark, is it? Discopods? Disco well, mm-hmm. I mean, you can make whatever tiny URL you want. I guess so. They yeah. should have taken it. Yes. Well, anyway, the voting process is a bit of a hassle because our category is on the second page. And there are some categories it forces you to vote in to get there, even if it's something you're not familiar with. But it only takes a few minutes, and there are some other great shows in our category. So get on over there and just pick your favorite. Which should be us. Right. Well, exactly. Uh, And one last note, it's been nothing short of apocalyptic in Los Angeles these past few days, thanks to the five wildfires raging out of control here in Southern California, in the immediate vicinity specifically. We've been fortunate because we're not in any imminent danger. That you Uh, know of. Yeah. Uh, But the smoke has been brutal, I will say that. We also want to give a shout out to all of our firefighter listeners. We know we have a bunch because we've heard from you more than a few times over the past year or two. So be safe and thank you very, very much for doing what you do. Neither snow, nor rain, nor heat, nor raging apocalyptic wildfires will stay these podcasters from the swift completion of their appointed recording sessions.
Oh, well done. Well, that was John Hurt. Yes, if he were I, I got it. I got it. Really? Yeah, I like well, that. Well, that one's been up the sleeve for a while. Well, see, I'm letting him do more impressions. No, all the people that are <laughs> writing in about that. On to the subject at hand. Tonight, we are starting, as we said a few minutes ago, a three-part series on the Yeti to finish out 2017. We're going to release these three shows in a row and then take a break over the holidays, returning the second week in January. Parts one and two of this series are going to focus on the folklore behind the story of the Yeti. And part three will be a deep dive on theories and analysis that will include an interview, as we said, with world-renowned expert on the Yeti, Dr. Daniel C. Taylor, who spent 60 years tracking the creature and trying to figure out what it really is. Along the way, he pioneered new methods to protect and conserve the Himalayas, which have been put to good use even now, huge swaths of it in multiple countries, all following the model that he developed, which is pretty awesome. And the last thing I want to say is with all of our multi-part series, please remember to hold your questions <laughs> and observations about what you think we might have overlooked until you've heard the entire series. Don't worry, we're going to touch on everything. Most everything. But you brought up an important point, which echoes the idea we brought up even earlier at the top of the show here. Even Dr. Taylor realized, you know, he was fascinated by the Yeti as a young boy and even saw tracks and saw an image in the paper claiming that and asked his father and grandfather, who were also Kipling-esque adventurer types, just an amazing lineage there of fearless explorers and conservationists. And I don't think that he knew what he was getting into until years later when he basically it spurred him to set up localized zones of conservation and keeping the area intact. And so it was a tremendous process of discovery for him as well. Yes, indeed. And that footprint is where we start out tonight. That footprint is what is known as the Shipton footprint, mm -hmm. which we've talked a little bit about. And we want to explain why that is such an important milestone in the search for the Yeti. I think one of the first things I would say, and it's something that Dr. Taylor talks about, but anybody that is exploring the Yeti would discuss, is the fact that it's a footprint. It is something created by a creature that at that moment in time was solid and had weight, and it left a track. And not just a track, but a track unlike any other seen before. One that looked primate or human, and even showed what appeared to be a thumb-like digit. Yeah, so at the time, I want to make something clear to begin with. Again, these aren't reporters from the Weekly World News. They are the most respected mountaineers of their day. So when they said they discovered something, it was taken very seriously. And for those of you who think like, well, that could have been faked or it's a plaster cast, it's something we might see at lower elevations, like a Bigfoot print out in the woods, done in a park by some Yeah, because someone went out in front of you <laughs> and did that. But guess who's, no one's going out in front of you and putting a fake footprint in the snow at 17,000 feet. No, it's a long ways to go for a prank, as yeah. I always say. <laughs> and that's the other thing that stunned them. There should not be any prints like that at that altitude. It's above the tree line. It's above any vegetation or food, habitats of known creatures, man or beast. It was very odd. So, of course, it struck them immediately. And as we were just talking about here, if you think that that's been faked, I like to quote Dr. Daniel C. Taylor, legends don't leave footprints. This, of course, depends on your definition of a legend. Like a <laughs> mythical creature. No, exactly. doesn't necessarily leave a footprint. In terms of a scientific approach, this is a real live living thing that left not only this footprint, but a series of tracks yes. in the area. And these tracks aren't the only ones that have been seen. Locals have been seeing them for 
hundreds of years, and many people had been photographing them. The Sherpa guides immediately knew what it was. They didn't have to consult anybody. They said, Yeti. Yeah. It's a Yeti. Sahib. That's right. Yes. And Sahib is a an Indian noun as a term of deference or a polite reference or a title for a y- person. Yes, a yeah. word of Arabic origin. You must have heard it in all the, uh, you know, like the Gunga Din movies. Where yes. It's like, yes, Sahib. But I want to make it clear, uh, that exclamation may have been with Sir Edmund Hillary, who was also there and one of the most respected mountaineers and explorers of his time, partly connected to the Shipton Project, basically. So when his Sherpas saw the prints, they said, yes, Yeti Sahib. So you could say the locals knew immediately. They didn't have to consult anybody. And that definitely sparked the interest of the Western European explorers because they knew if their trusted guides believed in this, there might be definitely something to it. Plus, again, they're looking at evidence of something strange. It did not look like human footprints or any animal they'd seen. We'll, of course, have a picture of the Shipton print and Google that. You'll see it looks like a big, wide footprint that's kind of human with toes, but one big fat toe off to the side. Yes, and it's an easy one to find because it's the one that'll pop up with a pickaxe right next to it. Yeah, he had the presence of mind to lay down the ice axe there, the pickaxe, the yes. uh, next to the print. So the head of the axe is about a foot long, so that's about 12 to 13 inches long, and that's about as long as the print from the tip of the heel to the tip of the front toe, and the footprint is about five and a half or six inches wide. Yes, so he's a biggin. Now, and like we said, this isn't the first time someone has seen prints up there. In fact, Major L.A. Waddell actually came across some footprints on an expedition 62 years prior to this in 1889, also at around 17,000 feet in Sakim. And his porters told him they were Yeti tracks. But while acknowledging them as mysterious, he personally dismissed them as a snow bear. So the Shipton footprint, though, is the one that they got a photo of. Major Waddell did not get a picture. This is the one that sparked the great international conversation. Right. I believe because, you know, now we're talking about 1951. So we're entering the latter half of the 20th century. Things are more modern. Communication is better. When they came back and presented that photo, that thing went viral (laughs) in a 1950s kind of way. But the reason it did is, as we said earlier, these men were so well-respected who came back down. These aren't crackpots, and they know the area, and they had accomplished some amazing feats as far as mountaineering goes and exploring. No pun intended. (laughs) Oh, F-E-A-T-S, yes. That's the thing, is that they were... Uh, definitely wary of this. And Sir Edmund Hillary, as brave as he was, I at first at least believed that there was something to this that was not an everyday kind of beast, shall yes, we say. And there may have been a barrier to how much discussion some of these folks would have had publicly right. about what they thought it was. Because, of course, the papers, again, things get sensationalized, so these things come back. And this is not uh, the 19th century newspaper industry where things are made up out of whole cloth. But still, people ran wild with these stories and taking the little bits of these accounts of them coming back and just kind of running with it. But what you can't deny are the photos themselves. Right. What I was going to say is part of the reason that they don't necessarily go on and on about their own personal theory, the personal eyewitness things that they saw, whether it's Shipton and Ward or Waddell or whoever else, is that there's still that thing they have to worry about with being associated with a crazy mythical cryptid. Uh, sure, sure. So they bring back the picture. They say, you know what? We saw something. The porter said it was a Yeti. That day we summited and made camp. And this is something that Dr. Taylor mentions in his book. And he's speculating. But what kind of problems 
would there have been, it's kind of like coming back as a pilot and saying, I saw three UFOs, they yeah. went this way and that, do you want to report a UFO? No. <laughs> and it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. These guys will say, well, we found these tracks, here's a picture of the tracks, talk amongst yourselves, I'm a respected mountain climber. So there's an issue there, and that's something to consider when you think about how this legend gets discussed and debated, and the evidence of it gets discussed and debated by the people bringing it back right. and sharing it with the world at large. And there's even a rich oil man, as there always are in yes. these kinds of stories, who has the interest and the drive and the desire and mostly the funds to launch a major expedition. Yes. Same thing with Oak Island. You get people in there who have uh, some money, and not that they're all heavy-handed like that, as they were in Oak Island, but they come in with a lot of people. Yes. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. In this case, no one's really finding anything conclusive, although everyone does believe that these tracks are real. So that's where we start. Totally believe that these tracks were real, made by some kind of authentic animal, at least to the Western world, is unknown. Right. And the real question is, is it an animal or is it a hominoid? Yeah, right. By the way, a lot of the stuff we're going to be sharing is from Professor Daniel C. Taylor's book, Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery. We'll be mentioning that a few times throughout the course of this series, and you'll find a link to it just like you will any book we ever reference in our show notes. We have to inhale a lot of books for our show. Every week or two, we're sucking down a book. And I guess that I've gotten kind of used to it. It's really like cramming for an exam in college. Some of the books are better than others. They're all informative because sure, we always sure. try to find the best one on the subject. But this book, I could not put it down. I just found it riveting and really interesting. There's a lot of anecdotal information interceding in the chapters that yeah. was just as fascinating to me as the nuggets I was searching for that were particularly related to the Yeti. It's just a really great book. Well, you're reading someone's life work. They're open the crowning achievement of 60 years of research in the field. And so it's the whole story of that. It's really, it's epic. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to start with one observation that Professor Taylor made on page 143 of his book, which is the following question. I'll just quote it directly. He just said, why didn't Shipton and Ward take more photographs that day? And that was a question that he came back to a few times in the book. But this is one of the things that comes up, because if you're up there and you're finding this monumental evidence of some kind of new creature, wouldn't this be a really big deal? Well, that's a very interesting question. And there's been a lot of discussion about why there may not have been more pictures. And as the story unfolds, what you're going to find out is maybe there were some more, yeah. and maybe some of the pictures showed things that the one that everyone's focused on did not, that might have answered a whole lot of questions even way back then. Right. But we'll get to that later. Right. But, you know, there were things that they could have shown, as he makes his point, of like they could have shown the stride and done lots of angles and tried to see the difference between an uphill footprint and a downhill footprint and that sort of thing. And they didn't necessarily do that. But at the same time, they're pretty busy. Yeah, well, <laughs> try to survive <laughs> and climb a mountain, actually looking for another route up Everest. Yeah. So there are other things going on, plus a lack of oxygen which may have been a factor. Yes. Yes, other things going on. This is just one interesting anomaly. One thing, though, I want to say here up front, to nip this in the bud, people will say, well, there you go. Here's a spot in the modern era where this popped up. The rest is lore, and now it's all on the Internet. Yeah. <laughs> it's creepypasta stories. Right. Here's the thing. The ones that we mentioned, the first discoveries, even the, the ones that were kind of word of mouth or recorded in Explorer's journals, in the mid-19th century, British explorers, Western European explorers, leading up to November 8th, 1951, when this one was discovered, late in the afternoon, the fact is that the Sherpa, 
the indigenous peoples of the region have been living in the area for over 500 years, and they've always seen it. The legend goes way back, generation after generation after generation into the past, when, I mean, who knows when the first sightings were, which were unrecorded, but to them, this is not a new occurrence, and it is not an internet hoax or a sensation. It's a real thing. So think about that if you start to wonder, like, well, is this just a modern-day kind of a P.T. Barnum kind of thing to sell newspapers and books? Right. It is not. We were mentioning at the top of the show about how Movement Watch has really helped us out by providing such terrific prizes for our meetup here in L.A. Everyone seemed to be thrilled to have a chance to win a new watch for themselves. But what we didn't mention yet is how many compliments and questions we got about the ones we were wearing that night. Yeah, I got compliments on the Movement Denali I was wearing, and I think you had on the Mariner, right? Well, wearing a cool timepiece on your wrist is back in fashion, and that's the idea with Movement, because starting at just $95, you can have a really classy-looking watch that's solidly built with a clean, minimalist style that people will think you paid four or $500 for. Not only that, a movement watch will be one of the easiest gifts you can shop for and deliver this holiday season, and one that's sure to impress. Even the box it comes in is really stylish. The reason Movement is able to deliver all that quality and style for such an affordable price is that they sell directly to you over the internet, thereby cutting out the retail middleman and all that markup. And the best part about it, other than the value, is that you get to skip the crazy store lines and shop in the comfort of your jammies and fuzzy slippers. Right now, when you go to MVMT.com legends, you can buy any watch starting at $95 and get a free strap all placed in an elegant gift box, ready to give, and shipping is free. That's part of the style function of movement watches. You can easily change up straps to go with your outfit. But what if the gift receiver doesn't like it, you ask? They don't like it? Returns are free, too. But you won't need that. This watch has a really clean design. Seriously, we've been getting compliments ever since we put ours on. Now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movement.com legends. Join the movement. Hi, this is John Paul Decker, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. So let's take a deeper look at the Shipton footprint, because it really is the point of origin for modern attempts to find the Yeti and understand what it might be. So in order to understand that, you have to understand the footprint. It was the point of origin for Dr. Taylor's research, and it also has been for a lot of other people as well. With regard to the Shipton Ward expedition that it was discovered on, that started in August of 1951, but the tracks and the actual footprint weren't seen until November 8th after they had, because they had done multiple ascents on this trip. Now, I got some information on the team actually directly from cryptid expert and Twitter friend of the show, Lauren Coleman's website. Ah. Uh, He wrote an article back in 2012 about this, as you should expect. And he mentions that the expedition team included the following members. Eric Shipton, Michael Ward, Bill Murray. Wait, what, what, Bill Murray? Yeah. Ghostbusters, Bill Murray. No, 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 no. not that Bill Murray. Okay. I mean, he does do a lot of stuff, but it wasn't him. (laughs) I could could see a movie with him in it. This is actually William Hutchinson Murray, world-famous Scottish mountaineer, whose primary climbing period was just prior to World War II. Ah, okay. Well, you know, Bill Murray was in Razor's Edge. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Well, (laughs) William H. Murray, W.H. Murray, was a legend himself. He was actually captured after this expedition during World War II by a tank commander from the German 15th Panzer Division in June of 1942. And this is the exchange he had with his captor. 
To my astonishment, the German commander forced a wry smile and asked in English, Aren't you feeling the cold? I replied, cold as a mountaintop. He looked at me and his eyes brightened. Do you mean you climb mountains? He was a mountaineer. We both relaxed. He stuffed his gun away. After a few quick words, the Alps, Scotland, rock and ice, he could not do enough for me. So that's what happened when he got captured during a retreat by a German panzer tank commander. And once they both found out they were mountain climbers, everything was okay. Right. You find some uh, commonality and you realize, I mean, you're fighting for different sides, but you're people. Yeah. Exactly. Unfortunately, he still became a POW. Well, <laughs> so yeah. he was a POW for three years. This is Bill Murray, by the way. Three years as a POW where he wrote a book on freaking toilet paper. Wow. Yeah. And then the Gestapo found it and destroyed it. Oh. So he wrote it again. <laughs> so that oh. very book, Mountaineering in Scotland, and its sequel are both available on Amazon today, uh-huh. not on a roll of toilet paper. Yes. Listen to this review by journalist David Rose writing at the time for The Observer on it. Quote, the writing is sublime with descriptions of climbing that come close to the Buddhist idea of ahimsa, the shedding of self. It offers a more complex but satisfying answer to the questions why climb than Mallory's because it's there. So we've got a link to that book if you're interested in it. It was this Bill Murray, not the Ghostbuster. <laughs> right. In tangent. You, you know, the important point of that is that, uh, and people might say, like, well, let's get to the Yeti. Uh, what about all this mountain climbing business? This is the point. Because if we didn't have these brave and hardy souls who climb mountains because either they're there or it's a spiritual Buddhist kind of thing, we would not maybe know about the Yeti. It took people to climb these mountains to engage with the Sherpa to see the tracks, to bring this to the Western European world, yeah. uh, to the English-speaking world anyway, as I just got done saying a little while ago, that they knew about it, the people that lived there, the indigenous peoples. And it's like, of course it's a Yeti. That's their point of view. And we didn't know about it till then. So, of course, what we do with it is we misinterpret the legends, we exaggerate them, we blow them out of proportion, we appropriate incorrect and uh, erroneous things to them. And that's how we deal with legends because they're not as sacred to us as they are to them. So anyway, that's the connection that Scott's making here is that it's mountain climbing that gives us this story. Indeed. And this team, the rest of the people on it are like superstars, really, because it's Shipton Ward, William Murray, Tom Bordillon, Ed Hillary, before he was a sir. Yes. Earl Ritterford, Angtharke, who is likely a Sherpa, Pasang Bodia. Nima, Sin Tenzing, and six other Sherpas. And yes, it is the Ed Hillary, Sir Edmund Hillary, the man who would later be credited, along with Tenzing Norgay, who is a Sherpa, to be the first man to summit Mount Everest in 1953. If you haven't heard the term Sherpa before, we wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because it's going to come up a lot in the story of the Yeti. We've probably already said it 50 billion times ourselves. I didn't know who they were either until I read uh, John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, Uh which came out back in 1997. And boy, that is a nail biter. That book is about Krakauer's account of the 1996 Mount Everest disaster during which a rogue storm killed eight climbers on their way to the summit. So if you want to see or read about what climbing Everest is like in modern times, that book is the one. Krakauer didn't just interview people about it. He was there. He was on the trip himself. And it's tragic what happened, but also just really frightening. And when you read that and you come out of it and you think about what is the environment that this creature would live in? And if it is a hominoid, if it's human, 
how could it survive these storms? Because one of the things that Everest is famous for is sudden, unpredictable, severe, life-threatening storms. Yeah, you're at the top of the world. So uh, the weather, of course, is extreme and unpredictable. But I always put this under this umbrella. These things will happen when you go to places where we're not really meant to be naturally. So the Sherpa have adapted, and they survive very well. But it's like, you know, the deep oceans, tragic things happen to really adventurous people. The tops of mountains, tragic things can happen to very adventurous people who are brave enough to go up there. Some might say foolish. And as well as outer space. Yeah. Those things happen. So if you have to take a bunch of stuff with you to stay alive... (laughs) Maybe you shouldn't yeah. be there. I don't know. I'm just saying, you know. No, we're, well, that's the thing. They, they, <laughs> I don't want to kill anybody's sense of no, adventure. No, they, they, of course, uh, go there to find things that uh, us mere mortals would never know because they're brave enough to venture it. Yeah, so Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air, is just an account of one of the many harrowing mountain climbing stories that are out there. And there are several, of course, really well known and, and some tragic ones, but full of adventure. Yeah, talking more about the Sherpas and the reason that they stand out in the saga of being in that area. There are people that are from the portion of the Himalayas or the Himalayas that are in Nepal. And there were originally, I guess, four groups of their people. There's now over 20 clans, according to Wikipedia, which, you know, take that with a grain of salt. But what's amazing about these folks is that they're born into that region. They are naturally acclimatized to the high elevation. I read into thin air almost 20 years ago, but I seem to remember that some Sherpas can ascend Everest without oxygen tanks, right? Yeah, actually, Babu Chiri, a Sherpa, summited 10 times and spent 21 hours on the summit with no auxiliary oxygen, a record which still stands. And on top of that, he made the fastest ascent in history in just under 17 hours. And a little side note, which is, uh, I'm not sure Scott knows, I think I saw this on the news and... He just brought a bunch of Snickers bars with him. So Nice. (laughs) Unbelievable. Well, no, because... There's uh, a commercial. Yeah, there there is a commercial, (laughs) but you burn through a lot of energy. And I remember uh, one of the first orders I ever placed years ago at REI was for uh, these uh, mint cakes that Sir Edmund Hillary took up. So here I I was ordering something called Kendall's Mint Cake, and I'm like, oh, that'll be delicious, and you can take camping. It's like, no, no, it's a solid brick of sugar (laughs) (laughs) with mint oil. Because, as I think Sir Edmund Hillary had said, it's like, uh, well, these are, you know, bloody good, because you just need the pure sugar to keep up with the calorie burn, because, again, it's it's so cold, your body's, like, burning it like it's going out of style, and that's all it is. And I remember something else he said towards the end, also when they were kind of running out of food, they were just eating handfuls of sugar and washing it down with lemonade. Right. So that was one kind of funny thing that, uh, yes, candy bars will even fuel the Sherpa. And the first person to climb Mount Everest without supplemental oxygen was Reinhold Messner. And he's from the autonomous Italian province of South Tyrol. He's written over 80 books, and he's done a lot of other crazy. Like, he crossed Antarctica without dogs or snowmobiles. He crossed the Gobi Desert. This guy just likes to go places and take nothing with him. No, and if you look look at his photo, he looks like... That's what he looks like. Yeah, he looks like the most interesting man in the world. Right, and then on top of that, for those of you that are Ben Folds fans... You might remember an album called The Unauthorized Biography of Reinhold Messner. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Which turns out was not about him. I think everybody who knew who Reinhold Messner was thought it was connected. But according to lore surrounding Ben Folds, it was a fake ID that the drummer had. And that was the name (laughs) he had on his fake ID when they came up with it. But then, of course, Reinhold Messner found out about it. He did. Yes, and they had an amicable discussion about it. So Again, it's the part of the commercial where it's like, just be thankful he didn't beat the crap out of you. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, this guy... He can could. do it, yeah. yeah. 
<laughs> so he went up with no oxygen. The Sherpas are going up with no oxygen. And in fact, the Sherpa who ascended the most times without supplemental oxygen was named Ang Rita. And I guess he went up 10 times without oxygen. But still, the record for fastest ascent belongs to Babu Chiri Sherpa. So anyway, there's all kinds of records. All these people are tough as nails. Some of the Sherpas who are local and born into the region, they don't really have the acclimatization issues that other people have. I I don't know what kind of training Reinhold did for his ascent, but I doubt that he just showed up and popped up the mountain. (laughs) Well, no, I I think he was familiar with the mountainous regions from his homeland. But usually what these guys do is they climatize at different levels right. for a while. So you have to live there while your blood Couple adjusts. Weeks, yeah, think, because yeah. Uh, what uh, Sir Hillary said was that you really feel like you've got the bad flu. Yeah. You've got a headache, you can't think straight, you're weak, you're sluggish. This happens to me just when I go from LA <laughs> to Denver. You know, because my dad <laughs> yeah. lives in Denver. and Oh, he does. I'll does go it? and yeah. like running up the steps and I'm like, <gasps> yeah. like, what is the problem? I right. mean, of course, now I'm older. I, when I was a kid, right. there wasn't an issue, but it definitely yeah. is now. Um <laughs> I lived in Denver till I was nine, but I don't know that it helped me in North Carolina, which is where ah, I lived after I that. Right, but right now, right here, we're only 244 feet above sea level. Yes, very, very, very low. But you'll see athletes do that, is train at high altitudes. Yes. And so the idea, though, is if you're born into it, the larger point we're making here is that uh, these people know their area very well. Yes. Well, some parts of it, as we'll learn, are dense and jungly due to the microclimates that they hold within their own little areas. So some of them are like dense jungle. In this area, though, when you see the photos of it, it's open, bare, rocky. It's a glacier. There's not a lot of places to hide. Yeah, and by the way, you bring up a really good point, and it's something that we want to reiterate. We've been talking a lot about Everest right now, but the Himalaya range in general has all different types of elevations, and the Yeti habitat is pertinent to all different types of elevations, all the way down to vegetation and thick jungle, yes. moving up to the higher elevations, some tracks cited as high as 19,000 feet. Right. So that's something to keep in mind. And we will be talking about those multiple elevations as we go on. But right now we're focusing a little bit on Everest because that's where the Shipton Ward footprint was found. Yeah, that's kind of the epicenter here. But as we'll learn later, many different regions, countries even, peoples, traditions, all have their own Yeti or wild man legends, which are all somewhat connected. So I'm sure you probably thought that was a tangent. It kind of was, (laughs) but I I think it was important to talk about the Sherpas and what they represent because their culture is a big part of the Yeti mythology. From the explorers themselves, the people that I, you know, we respect here in the West, they respect the Sherpa the most because not only have they saved their lives on multiple accounts, you give deference to anybody who knows their area that well, and you don't come in pretending you know it better than them. That's right. So, yes, all due respect to them. Plus, uh, yeah, they will just climb circles around you. So, well, Yeah, they're the ones when they're, there's always some guy up there who's famous for making the ascent. And standing next to him is a Sherpa who went up with him and is holding all his crap. <laughs> his, his bag of candy bars and sugar. Yeah, yeah, candy bars, computers, laptops, satellite uplinks, and in some cases, an espresso machine. Oh, dear. Uh, but that's another story. Oh, um, right. Yes, it is. Coming back around to the overall sum up of the Shipton Ward footprint, because it is the basic building block of the modern Yeti story and how it got into the modern zeitgeist in terms of what it is. And there's a word I haven't used in a while. Uh, but um, Seems but, like yesterday. I know. Right. Talking about why there weren't more pictures and there wasn't more of an explanation. One of the things
things that Dr. Taylor conjectured in his book, and I have to say it makes a lot of sense to me, and it's based on some quotes directly from Shipton, was, well, for one thing, they were primarily concerned with surviving. It was late in the day. I think it was around four o'clock when they came across these tracks. So they're having to worry about what they're going to do for the night. They're tired. They're carrying a lot of stuff. And by the way, all jokes aside about the Sherpas, back then these guys were doing all the same amount of work the Sherpas were doing. It's different now. It's more of a tourism thing, or <laughs> or it certainly was in the 90s. Well, you, I, It's been was, reformed since uh, the story that Krakauer writes about. Yeah, basically what you're saying is that people who were in somewhat, you just can't be like in fair, decent shape from the gym right. doing Zumba. It's very taxing, and there are people going up that probably should not have been attempting it. Right. And the footprints, as we said earlier, were leading away. Like you said, it was getting dark. You don't want to be trapped out there alone in the dark, not knowing your way back. And not having your camp set up. Exactly. So these guys were very smart. Michael Ward, the one whose account we read from, he was also a doctor. So these guys are very knowledgeable, very skilled. It's time to go back, and we'll look at this later. Plus, I think that they had heard at this time, that there were other tracks, of course, from their guys. Like, this wasn't a once-in-a-lifetime deal. It's like, oh, no, that's how we know it. There's other tracks by Yeti. Right. So their primary concern, really, is self-preservation and ascent routes. It's not to discover a new unknown cryptid, especially when, at this point, the Yeti was more of a looser, less famous unknown thing. It's not the reason they're doing the climb, right? which is right. a whole different ball of wax. They would later, because they would come back to search for it, and certainly Edmund Hillary would come back looking for it. Yeah. And I alluded to this earlier, but this was another supposition or, or theory that Professor Taylor had made about the idea that you had to be careful about associating yourself with something as wild as the idea of the Yeti and the mythos of the Yeti, especially if you're trying to be an esteemed mountaineer. Right. So you take the picture, you present the picture, you let other people argue about it. Yeah. It's not what your raison d'etre is, to say, <laughs> with a Southern twang. Yeah. <laughs> so Good Southern French, though. Yeah. yeah. That sums up everything about that footprint that's going to be the footprint that you're going to see whenever you look online and you look up Yeti footprint. You're going to see this picture with the pickaxe, but but what you're not going to realize is that's only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the Yeti. Mm. One thing I love about my Casper mattress is that I've had it over a year now, and it's never lost its original shape since the day it sprang forth, still delivering on that right amount of sink and right amount of bounce. I'm kind of fascinated by their engineering and all that science that goes into making one. Well, for most people, all they know about foam in general is that it's all one density, but a Casper mattress is engineered with multiple supportive memory foams so that the first inch or two gives you that comforting memory foam cushioning that people love, but then the mattress firms up below that, so it also gives your body a combination of the softness and firmness it needs in all the right places for a great night's sleep. Casper now has three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential. And Casper is not just a mattress company. They offer a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. If you're looking for a new mattress, and most folks don't even know they need a new one because they've gotten so used to the saggy old one they have, you need to check out a Casper. Trying one out couldn't be more convenient because they deliver it right to your door. It also couldn't be more worry or risk-free because Casper has a no-hassle returns policy if you're not completely satisfied, and there's free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. So you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. Start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com A-L and use promo code A-L at checkout. Just note that this offer is only applicable to a mattress purchase, and of course, terms and conditions apply. 
So once again, to get $50 towards the purchase of any Casper mattress, go to casper.com slash AL and then use promo code AL at checkout. I'm Tom, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. All right, so we talked about the footprint, the iconic footprint that really set the wheels in motion with regard to searching for an actual creature. It's the watershed moment for the Western world. Before we get into some of the encounters that the Western world had with these creatures and the footprints, and there are some really amazing stories that the, that the Astonishing Research Corps dug up, we did want to tell you just how pervasive it is in Nepalese culture. And by Nepalese culture, we're talking about Nepal. And here's something to understand. I have not been to the region. I'm sure some of our listeners have been and probably traveled there and all that, but I was not geographically familiar with it until I read Professor Taylor's book about how expansive and lengthy the Himalayas are, and he calls them the Himalayas, and he grew up there. So that's how the mountain range is referred to locally. So you might hear us going back and forth between Himalaya and Himalaya. It's not that we're like Madonna and pretending to be British. We're just, we've learned it both ways these past couple of weeks. <laughs> we're trying so, to avoid more emails yes, is what's happening. Yes, lots of pronunciation emails. But it's funny because we were having lunch preparing to work on this series. Right. And we were at one of our favorite bar and restaurants called Hyperion Public over in Los Feliz, which is not too far from where Forrest actually lives here in Los Angeles. That's nope. where people go to look for my tracks. Yes. No big mystery there. And our friend Robin Shore was walking by and saw us sitting inside. She's (laughs) a friend of my wife. They work together as writers. And Robin was like, Scott? And I couldn't believe it. So she comes in and we told her what we were doing and she was like, it's Himalaya. And she was halfway (laughs) joking, but she takes yoga. And I guess they say it that way when they're super, imagine you're in the Himalayan mountains. Right. Well, very, yes. Of course, yoga instructors being very respectful to the Tibetan, Buddhist, Nepali yes. kind of traditions. So, of course, they're wanting you to get that right. Yeah, we were a little bit schooled on that. Yes, and I just wanted to say thank you to Robin. Robin, by the way, has a, I thought we were niche. She and comedian Morgan Murphy have their own podcast, which is a niche podcast just about Los Feliz. It's well, very, very entertaining. It's, it's doing well. <laughs> you can look for that on iTunes if you're interested. But I did want to say thank you for the Himalayan heads up. Right. So there's a lot of interesting things about the Himalayan mountains, and one of them is how incredibly huge the range is. You don't really realize it. The range has over 50 mountains that are taller than 23,600 feet in elevation. It's bordered on the northwest by Karakaram and Hindu Kush ranges, and on the north by the Tibetan Plateau and the south by the Indo-Gangetic Plain. The entire range is inhabited by almost 53 million people spread across five countries. India, which is actually where Professor Taylor lived when he was a child, in the Himalayas, but in India, Nepal, Bhutan, China, and Pakistan. India, Nepal, and Bhutan have sovereignty over most of the mountain range, which is important to consider, and it's something that Dr. Taylor talks about, too, in his interview. China was closed out for quite some time, and so was Nepal for a while. Right. Well, just if you can just picture it in your mind, on the map, Nepal is a kind of a sweet pickle that's sandwiched between India to the southwest and to the northeast, kind of, you have all of Tibet, which, of course, politically is claimed by China. So that whole region has their own variations of the wild man. That's right. And there's a bunch of names that they're known by culturally across the area. One of them, uh, you know what, I'm not reading this list. You read it. I'll read it, sure. Yeah, you wrote it. You read it. Quaid, who's a member of the ARC, 
posted this to River, and he got this from Wikipedia. He was impressed yes. with the entry. He said it was very well documented, well referenced. A well sourced entry at, at Wikipedia. Yeah, they so, do exist. <laughs> this one uh, seems to be pretty on spot. And I love making up pronunciations for words and getting letters and notes about it. So here we go. First, we have a Miche, which roughly translates to man bear, Zute, which is cattle bear, Migoi or Migo. That translates to wild man, Bunmanchi, jungle man. And then we go to the Mirka, which is wild man, and the Dong Admi, which is snow man. So in listening to that, you're never going to remember all those names. But what you may put together here, dear listener, is that there is a theme running through these names by the indigenous peoples. It's man, bear, cattle, meaning maybe this thing steals cattle. There's certainly some stories about that. And jungle. And the one through line here is the word man. Five out of six of them have the word man in them. And that tells you something about how they're perceived, about how the Yeti, which is an additional name, is perceived locally. They gravitate towards this thing being some kind of hominoid, meaning a man-ape-like creature. Bipedal. Yes, walking upright, two legs, and frankly, more ape-like, but maybe a combination of uh, something else. And each one of those has different stories behind it. One of the more prominent ones from Dr. Taylor's book is the Bun Manchi, and we're going to talk more about that in parts two and three. Suffice it to say that you want to avoid that guy because he steals your children. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, <laughs> well, well, so many things do. Yes, you can say the lore parts of that, the folklore that's handed down is you kids better behave yeah. or we're calling the Bun Manchi or we're getting a hold of Krampus and he's going to take care of you. Oh, yes, Krampus. Yeah, That's see. a good Christmas story. One we covered our first year, I think, for a Christmas story. If not, yeah, was it a, was the first right, year, right? It was a Christ- while back. Christmas special. Yeah. So if you're looking for an older show to listen to that's a fun episode, look for our Krampus show. It's better than the movie, I promise. <laughs> um, well, that, but that's an interesting point here and I think and a valid one tying to the folklore of the region that we all have is that there's some kind of boogeyman that parents will tell the kids about to keep them in line. However, there is one story we're going to get to here shortly where it may have tried to carry off a young maiden. So let's talk about that. A lot of the sightings that are connected to these local cultures are extremely folkloric in nature. And we'll talk about those a little bit more in part two of the series. But the stories that surround these creatures have more to do with the broad identity of what they are what they represent, and how they should be revered or feared or treated in the big picture. There's not a whole lot of specific, well, on March 14th, 1933, (laughs) I was hunting and I saw, and they described the encounter. However, visitors to the region from the Western world do make those notes when they have had encounters. And some of these stories that the Research Corps have dug up are just too much fun not to share. So we're going to throw a few of those in here as we work towards the last part of part one here. One of what is considered to be the first eyewitness report to the Western world was made by a man known as B.H. Hodgson in 1832. And this is actually a sighting that was made by his guides that he makes a footnote about and writes off as a mistaken identity 
for the creature in question. And by the way, Hodgson was actually the court of Nepal's first British resident, which is uh, interesting oh, in itself. Interesting, yeah. And this mention is actually a very brief part of an essay written in the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal, Volume 1. I just know from Bengal Tiger. Is that right, Bengal? Well, that's okay. how I say it, sure. The Bengals. So <laughs> um, in that particular essay is called On the Mammalia of Nepal by B.H. Hodgson, Esquire. That's from August of 1832. Hodgson's a pretty amazing-looking guy, by the way. He's got sideburns that go down. <laughs> like General Burnside? Yeah. <laughs> really? Even bigger. A little bit crazier. I mean, he was a scientist. The species of Tibetan antelope is actually named after him. It's called Panthalops hodgsoni. Well, very yeah. nice. So that's where we're at with this guy. Now I'm going to read this quote from that Mammalia article that's from the journal. My shooters were once alarmed in the Kachar by the apparition of a wild man possibly an orang, which is an old word for orangutan, but I doubt their accuracy. They mistook the creature for a cacodemon, or a rakshas, which is also a demon, and fled from it instead of shooting it. It moved, they said, erectly, was covered with long, dark hair, and had no tail. Uh-huh. So that's considered the first eyewitness report to the Western world. That's going to be the story that first plants the seed in people's minds that there's some unknown hominoid or primate that might be in the region. Right, and it brings up an important point you should keep in mind here as you're listening to this. It's also one of the first descriptions where someone from the Western world has encountered how the locals see this with their own sighting, and there is a supernatural element to that. And that's what he meant by cacodemon, is that there is an evil spiritual element to this that the indigenous peoples are afraid of and respect. You know, and of course, the Western, he's just thinking, well, it's an animal. So they believe it's a lot more than that. So that's something to note here with this anecdote. Yeah, and the other thing to note about it is that it's quoted in a few places, and the word rakshas was misspelled. It had an I. Yeah. That's a rickshaw, which I think everybody knows what a rickshaw is. (laughs) At the plural of rickshaw, which, yeah, I spent 10 minutes on. (laughs) Yeah, we we had to look it up and find out that it was a term for a demon. Ah, there we go. Yeah, so they saw something unusual. He stated that he thought it was misattribution. He has a scientific mind. He obviously was a little bit incredulous. Also, having not seen it himself, I'm sure there was a little bit of prejudicial thinking there to to whatever extent. So that's interesting. So we're going to move on to another story. We talked a little bit earlier about a British Army physician named Major L.A. Waddell. And I actually want to read this excerpt from Professor Taylor's book, Yeti, The Ecology of a Mystery. This is on page 79 of his book. Major Waddell returned from a hunt on the high Himalayan glaciers. He brought a trophy more sensational than the mountain sheep or bear he had gone seeking. Out of the Himalaya, Waddell brought sightings of footprints that ascended a glacier, then disappeared over a ridge, hominoid-like footprints. With those prints, the Yeti first walked into the Western consciousness. So it's Taylor's opinion that this is really the first time that it becomes full public knowledge for the Western world. Yeah, 1899, right? Yes, and here's an excerpt from his book, Among the Himalayas, by Lawrence Waddell, as you just said, published in 1899. Some large footprints in the snow led across our track and away up to the higher peaks. These were alleged to be the trail of the hairy wild men who are believed to live amongst the eternal snow, along with the mythical white lions whose roar is reputed to be heard during storms. The belief in these creatures is universal among Tibetans. None, however, of the many Tibetans I have interrogated on this subject could ever give me an authentic case. 
On the most superficial investigation, it always resolved itself into something that somebody heard tell of. So that's an interesting take on it. He's saying, I don't know, this may all be folklore and legend because I can't seem to find an actual eyewitness. Well, it has that urban legend angle to it where it's like, yeah, my cousin's hairdresser's sister said. Yeah. (laughs) So you, you might be just seeing a lot of that within the communities and the villages and the clans of the mountains here, but maybe someone somewhere down the line saw something strange. And again, these are oral tradition histories here. These are not written down for people to pass down. These are told from generation to generation. So it is a little bit of the telephone game. It's really unfortunate, but as long as there's been people, there's been warfare. And it doesn't seem like that's going to change anytime soon. As Professor Gregory S. Aldretti says in our latest series on The Great Courses Plus, The Decisive Battles of World History, warfare has been a part of almost every society, and it can be documented in almost every time period. And one obvious explanation for the widespread existence of war is its potential for causing rapid change. As long as it's going to keep happening, we might as well learn from it. Because by examining the decisive battles of world history, we can use that focus as a useful analytical tool that allows us to see history not as some boring sequence of events, but as a series of constantly branching pathways, often with unpredictable outcomes, where the most seemingly insignificant acts during a battle have changed the course of human history. And in the larger scope, one of the rapid changes that war brings is technological change. Because like it or not, as Professor Aldretti also says, from the invention of the wheel to the development of the jet engine, typically the first use of any new invention is in a military context. Wow. Well, don't we sound well-informed. For once. (laughs) And now you can, too, with the great Courses Plus, because it's like having a tiny university right in your own pocket. You can stream and watch any of their over 8,500 courses on your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV, and with their new app, you can even listen to them just like a podcast. We know you're going to love the Great Courses Plus as much as we do, so they're giving our listeners an entire month to enjoy any of their courses for free. But you need to sign up with our special URL. So start your free month today by signing up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. You know one thing that's cool about Blue Apron, and we've mentioned it a lot, but it's the fact that it's so flexible. I'll get deliveries right up until I leave for vacation, so I don't have to buy groceries that'll spoil, and then it'll be right on my doorstep the day I get back, so I don't have to run out and go shopping. Dinner's done. Yeah, you get just the right amount of fresh pre-portioned ingredients you need for each meal, so there's nothing that spoils. And you can put the deliveries on hold and adjust the delivery date for when you want it, all right from Blue Apron's website. And those ingredients are only non-GMO, and the meat has no added hormones. There's also a lot of variety because Blue Apron's in-house culinary team designs a menu that features 12 new recipes each week and changes it up based on what's in season. Customers can pick two, three, or four recipes based on what best fits their schedule and taste buds. You can choose a two-person meal plan or a family meal plan that serves four people, and even a wine plan, which is six bottles of wine from renowned winemakers delivered monthly. You're probably going to be treating a lot of people to dinner this holiday season, so why not let Blue Apron treat you, the Astonishing Legends listener, to their first dinner, a $30 value if you visit blueapron.com astonishing. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off with free shipping at blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Hi, I'm Paul Workman, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends.
All right, moving on to another story. We're moving up to uh, more recent times now. This is takes place in Tibet in 1938. Did you want to introduce Captain Duverne? Oh, yes, just because I want to say Captain Duverne. Very well done. Oh, thank you. From yeah. my four years of French. I can, <laughs> right. that's about all I can tell you. I can just fake it. Yeah. Uh, but Bonjour. this is, <laughs> sorry. sorry. <laughs> now, this account comes to us from BigfootEncounters.com, the website, and we've seen it in a few other places, but we're not sure of the provenance, or <laughs> who's maybe borrowing from whom. Yes. But he is a real guy. We did confirm that. <laughs> right. And he did have those titles, and he does seem to be kind of highfalutin there. Okay, so here's the story. While working out in the higher elevations of Tibet, Captain Dovern momentarily lost his vision during a whiteout snowstorm that blew in over the Himalayas quite suddenly. Freezing, suffering from the raw elements and disoriented, Dovern could have died of hypothermia in such a blinding blizzard in a few minutes' time. He claimed that a nine-foot-tall, whitish-gray, hair-covered figure actually sheltered, fed, and cared for him from the worst of it. When the captain recovered sufficiently to have a sense of his surroundings and reason his situation, the creature had disappeared. That was Captain Dovern's description of a benign, curiously protective creature. Right. So here's an interesting story, and it does remind me a little bit of Albert Osman. Yeah. Uh, just in terms of the relationship in the cave, which not everybody's going to tell you about. <laughs> well, um, I don't think there's any snuff involved. No, knows? no, yeah. not in this case. But there's no other story like that. And granted, he probably was suffering from hypoxia and hypothermia and everything else. So it's not too far-fetched to think that this was all in his mind. Yeah, really, how do we know what the truth is? And keep this in mind, he is a high-ranking and esteemed person in his community and the military, the British military. So it's a wild thing to come out and say that I was cared for by a giant nine-foot-tall Yeti. Yeah, but what's interesting here is that you're going to hear some other stories that are benign, where they're kind of kind yetis that take care of people or watch out for them or help them in some way, and a lot of them where they're not really kind. They are feared and respected in that sense because they have almost a supernatural power, almost kind of a demigod spiritual presence within some of the indigenous peoples there. But that was an interesting example where somebody was sheltered and had his life saved by a Yeti. Well, there you go. And it, <laughs> on that very same page on BigfootEncounters.com is something you were just talking about. There's actually another story about a Nepalese shepherdess. This took place near her village. A similar creature crossed paths with her. The large ape with black and brown hair had seized the Sherpa girl and would have made off with her if a piercing scream hadn't sent him scampering. But not before he had killed two from her herd of yaks, and the police who visited the site immediately afterwards found large footprints among the carnage, which seemed to back her claim. So that's a different story, as they point out on BigfootEncounters.com. Same year, or actually era at least, right? The 30s, yes. late 30s. Yeah. Yes. But this is something dangerous and violent. Right. And well, skinwalkery a little. Skinwalkery, and definitely not, you know, taking her to a cave to protect her and nurse her back to health. No. Uh, maybe to have her for lunch, possibly. <laughs> so well, that's like the bun manchi. Yes. You know? Yeah, it's, it'll carry off your young. But you have to wonder whether or not these people... No, and you know, this is kind of the Kelly Hopkinsville thing. They live in the region. Right. If they actually engage with an animal in a fight 
for their lives or they're trying to keep from being abducted or attacked by something, you would think that they would know if that was an animal they had seen before, like a bear or, I mean, if you're a shepherdess, yeah. you would think you've seen everything <laughs> you know the that's animals. out there. Yeah. No, and that's what uh, Professor Taylor says. He's grown up seeing all these animals. You can't put one over on him. He's seen the monkeys on the roof. He's seen uh, different creatures. Some are more rare than others. But yes, I would say that for these people who deal in animals all day, all their lives, that if something was extraordinary, they would know it was extraordinary. But we don't know. Again, there's no documentation that's solid here, but you have to take these accounts as they are. Well, speaking of documentation, it's funny you should bring that up. I do think we have to talk about the Foreign Service Dispatch from the American Embassy in Kathmandu regarding regulations governing mountain climbing expeditions in Nepal related to the Yeti. And that's something Scott and I joke about. I think people make fun of us for it, but it's like whenever a government entity or a cruise ship or a hotel, somebody takes something seriously that's kind of uh, out there. Yeah. You know, a little fringy here. But obviously the Foreign Service of the United States, the I guess maybe now would be the State Department, took this seriously enough to issue a dispatch. Let's read this dispatch right here. Uh, this was a priority dispatch sent by Air Pouch. It is marked as unclassified, December 10th, 1959, from the American Embassy in Kathmandu to the Department of State in Washington. And I guess it was delivered December 10th. It was actually written November 30th. So let's read what it says here. Regulations governing mountain climbing expeditions in Nepal related to Yeti. There are at present three regulations applicable only to expeditions searching for the Yeti in Nepal. These regulations are to be observed in addition to the 15 clauses as listed in Mountaineering and Scientific Expeditions in Nepal, which is a separate document. The three regulations are as follows. Number one, royalty of rupees 5,000 Indian currency will have to be paid to His Majesty's Government of Nepal for a permit to carry out an expedition in search of Yeti, which, by the way, is in quotes. Yeah, yeah. Number two, in case Yeti, again in quotes, is traced, it can be photographed or caught alive, but it must not be killed or shot at except in an emergency arising out of self-defense. All photographs taken of the animal, the creature itself, if captured, alive or dead, must be surrendered to the government of Nepal at the earliest time. Three, News and reports throwing light on the actual existence of the creature must be submitted to the government of Nepal as soon as they are available and must not in any way be given out to the press or reporters for publicity without the permission of the government of Nepal. For the ambassador, Ernest H. Fisk, Counselor of Embassy. Well, there you go. That's a real official U.S. government document. Yeah, and it's pretty fascinating. I have to say, after reading Professor Taylor's book, though, that I have a pretty good idea what the root of this is. And I'd like to talk more about that when we get to part three. But for now, I think it's a fascinating document. This shows that the Nepalese government and the American government are taking the possible existence of this creature seriously. So what we're seeing here, I believe, is some diplomatic deference to the Nepalese government by the U.S. government. And, of course, the Nepalese themselves, they know of these legends, and they believe that at least it's probably some kind of real creature that people are seeing. And we should have some laws or lay down a few ground rules on how to deal with it. Basically, like, if you see one, well, yeah, let's capture it. Let's see what's going on. We'd like a little fee 
for your expedition because you do come in and resources are used and we thank you for your visitations and your projects, but a little compensation would be nice and just capture it. Don't kill it. And, you know, don't throw it over the side of a cliff. We'd like to study it. And what I see happening here with the U.S. government is like, yeah, in bowing down to the king and being diplomatic, it's laying down a few rules for the Westerners coming into the country. Yeah. To observe. That's a very good point. Well, I think we're getting close to the end of part one of our series here. Uh, Before we wrap up tonight, we should talk a little bit about the appearance of the Yeti as it's been reported. And there are varying descriptions. In fact, there's lots of them, even among the Nepalese and the other members of the Himalayan community. Right, right. But why don't you start with that a little bit? Maybe kind of put this to rest. It doesn't exactly look like Bumble from Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Bumble's bounce. They, 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 <laughs> it's not big, you know, it's not 20 feet tall. It's not uh, covered in white fur. And it doesn't really look like the abominable snowman from the Disney ride. The Matterhorn. Exactly. Yeah, I almost yeah. forgot about that. It's been <laughs> That's so right. long. Yeah. yeah, of course. Since I... It's, it's fun. It lets out a big roar. I think it's got glowing red eyes, which, boy, that's a whole other paranormal thing. With the yeah. Red eyes. Yeah. But that's kind of the romantic notion of that to kind of scare you. Now, as we just read, there was one description where the fur was whitish gray by Captain Dauvergne. Yes. Uh, so that's a little different. But most of them, it's a dark brown, long, reddish hair, kind of shaggy. And this is also from samples that people have seen or collected. But also when they see them, that's how they describe them. Brownish, blackish hair. This thing is very well muscled. A lot of them describe hands that are giant, giant arms on it, moving very deftly, having a lot of spring in their step and being spry. So... That's kind of the general physical description that lines up the most. However, there are tons of variations depending on your region here because, as we've hopefully pointed out to you, there are microclimates there in the region that are jungle, like rainy, like get monsoon rains. And so very dense vegetation, some where Shipton found the footprint very kind of desolate, looks like Mars with snow and gray and rocky. And, and that's and, at 17,000 feet. Exactly. So yeah. that's very high up. So you have a, a range of habitats that an animal, a natural animal, could inhabit. Here's the funny thing about how high 17,000 feet is. That is actually base camp now yeah. for Everest. <laughs> that's the altitude for base camp, where yeah. you start out you getting act, acclimatized right. to climb Everest. Back then, that system wasn't in place. Right. He's part of what established that, I presume. I may not be accurate about that. I'm sure some mountain Well, a- actually... Edmund Hillary, when he went and did his first expedition, did propose that, you know what, let's not just study, you know, or try to look for some kind of weird creature. Let's see how climatization happens and affects human beings. Yes. So he set up some experiments there and studied that at these high elevations, in addition to poking around for some strange creatures. So he took, again, a more scientific approach, like, it's kind of hard to get up here. Let's do something with this, (laughs) other than look for fur. But that is the main description. Again, reddish brown, long clumps of fur that look more wiry than hair. That's also another description uh, people have said that uh, when they've seen clumps of it, it doesn't look like uh, any kind of fuzzy, warm, soft thing like you'd see on an animal you know. So Yes, and bipedal movement and all the tracks seem to reflect bipedal walking as well. 
But we're going to have a lot more to say about that as the series progresses. So again, hold your comments and questions. (laughs) We're going to be really getting into that and how that works. It's interesting that one of the things that people describe is that this thing walks on two legs. Yeah, that is actually probably the most common thing running through all of the indigenous people's descriptions of this is that it doesn't move like anything else they've seen. There's definitely ape-like behavior with this. And the other super critical thing to understand, too, is that when you look at the Shipton print, you see that one of the toes is very much like a thumb. Yeah. And that takes it out of the realm of bear and into the realm of primate or hominoid. Right. And that's one of the things that was the real instigation for the search for this creature. Right. And one thing I wanted to mention before I forgot here is we're reaching the end of part one. There are some scientists who believe that a giant ape in the area is not impossible, even though it's hard for us to think about it. In one of the National Geographic documentaries I saw, they were going over the idea that Gigantopithecus, that we talked about in Albert Ostman's episode, a nine foot, 10 foot tall, giant ape, natural just giant, maybe lived about 100,000 years ago, roamed these areas, China, India, Southeast Asia, and it would have weighed around 1,200 pounds. Now, a modern gorilla that we think of and know is about maybe five to six feet tall at the most and weighs about 400 pounds. And how they get around is basically on all fours. They knuckle walk. That's how they support that massive weight. When you look at them, they have short back legs, big, huge arms, big fists, and that's how they carry their weight. And the idea is that, well, if Gigantopithecus is that huge, 1,200 pounds, That's going to put a lot of stress on those shoulder joints and arms. So what holds the most weight the best? An erect spine, that they may have been bipedal. Right, and not only bipedal, but they may have had thumbs on their feet. And so if they're walking bipedal and leaving these thumb-like appendages on their feet, that very much sounds like the Shipton photograph. Yeah, It's just hard to imagine this thing at that high elevation of 17,000 feet. But a lot of things about it do match the descriptions that locals have shared with people. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Again, they veered towards more ape than anything else that's around there. And at that altitude, there's not a lot of food. It's very harsh. So it's a strange place to see anything. But there are people and animals in the general vicinity. It's just at that altitude, it's not very likely to see something of that nature. Now, when I was talking about Gigantopithecus, bone fragments have been found. Part of it, they think that porcupines will carry off bone fragments because they need the calcium and uh, take them into caves in different areas. And maybe that breaks up a whole skeleton. But from the jawbone, which I believe that's the largest piece they found... From a mostly intact jawbone, you can extrapolate how big this thing was, and it's massive, and it's unbelievable. We've talked about it, of course, several times in different episodes, but just go Google the size comparison between a human being and Gigantopithecus. And there is some debate about the actual size of this creature that lived 100,000 years ago. Was it 10 feet tall, almost 9 meters or, or, or 10 meters? Was it actually 1,200 pounds or was it smaller? Well, from what I've read, it's going to be larger than the modern ape, than the modern gorilla we know of now. So a massive creature that possibly has survived. And it doesn't seem to be that crazy because these bone fragments, and they believe the habitat of this giant beast that was real 
is kind of roughly in these areas. Bone fragments have been found in China, in India, north of there. Jawbones, uh, right? I don't know about the actual jawbone. That might have been in Southeast Asia in a warmer climate, in a jungle kind of climate. But again, it's not that crazy. And there's an organization in the United States that believes Bigfoot is just some kind of extant woodland ape. And that's what they call it, woodland ape. There's nothing mystical about it. It's just for whatever reason, we have not captured one. We have not seen any pelts or fur that can be analyzed. But obviously, so many people have seen this thing, which is a giant a giant monkey ape something that is not natural to the area. Walking through the woods, crossing the road. So many people have seen this thing. Are they all lying or crazy or mistaken? Because it's hard to mistake a bear for a giant ape. I've seen bears in the wild naturally. And they don't look like gorillas. They don't look like monkeys. And think about this. Just a few weeks ago, there were articles about the frilled shark, the one with the 300 teeth in various rows that is dang prehistoric looking and a surviving type of species, millions of years old. But we tend to give the ocean a lot more credit and a possibility for harboring these kinds of things, even Loch Ness there's still the possibility that it's a real natural creature, just really, really old, that has survived in a strange condition. But think about this. As Professor Taylor says, legends don't leave footprints. That's going to wrap up part one of our in-depth series on the Yeti. We'll be back next week with part two, where we'll take you even deeper down the rabbit hole with some more stories, including one in which someone gave beloved star of It's a Wonderful Life, Jimmy Stewart, the finger. As always, special thanks again to The Ark, who did an outstanding job researching this series. Please remember to support our sponsors. They keep the show free and the lights on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolin. I'm John Paul Decker. P-A-U-L. Hi, I'm Paul Workman. M-A-N. John Paul Decker. M-A-N. P-A-U-L. I'm Tom. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night.